Amen. Good morning. morning. We're going to be right there where we left off in Nehemiah chapter 9. In fact, we're going to back up uh, to the first verse and get started in just a second. But I want to give you, uh, we've got kind of a, a, a lot to read through today. And so I'm going to move quickly through it today. So I'm just going to jump right in and give you a main idea for the day. Uh, when the task is done, as the wall is completed, a change occurs. The people don't want to lose what God has returned. Now, a question for us. What have we learned that should change us as a church? So in Nehemiah, here we are. The people have moved back into Jerusalem. They've rebuilt their temple. They've begun to refocus and rebuild their homes. Now they've rebuilt the community, right? When this task is completed, they're changed. They're transformed by the process. And, and what they're looking at in their lives is what it is that God has given back to them that they don't want to lose. And so for us, over this last, year, everybody says year and a half, now it's creeping up on two years, right, of, of COVID and, and just all the different things that we've been, to, been through together as a church, we've been asking different questions of ourselves, just pointing out, okay, the church is struggling through this season, right? The church, not just our local church, but the church in America struggling through some of these challenges. What have we learned in this season, right? These last few months that we've been together, we've been studying Acts on Sunday nights and in our community groups. What are we learning about the church? What has God done through us, in us, for us, that we don't want to lose sight of in the time to come, right? As we look to the next year, 2022, as we Look to this next season. It could be filled with COVID. It could be absent of COVID. I wouldn't bet on the last one, but here we are, right? It could be restricted by or it could not be. We don't know. We don't know what is to come. But what has God done for us in the midst of this? What has God taught us? What has God given us in this season that we don't want to lose sight of? So that's our question for the day. Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth with earth on their heads, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities to their fathers, and the iniquities of their fathers, excuse me. And they stood up in their place, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord for a quarter of the day, and for another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Benaiah, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanai, Kanani, excuse me. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, I don't know how to say it. Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah. I always tell people, just say it, just own it when you say it, and everybody will think you're smart. So there we go. So Pethahiah, right, said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So here's where we are. The wall has been completed. What we saw with John last week when he was here is the people gather together after the completion of the wall. And they tell the Levites and they tell the priests, they say, listen, read to us the law. And say, they start going through the law. Now, when we say law, here's what we mean. Really, the Torah is what they're going through. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. As you get, if you've ever done that Bible through the year, or if you were in community groups this year and you, and you worked through the beginning of that while we were teaching Exodus, you know that Genesis is pretty smooth sailing, right? It's a lot of stories. It's quick moving. You get into Exodus and the, there are slaves in Egypt. And then 
The next thing you know, God is delivering them and doing these crazy things in Egypt to get Pharaoh to release them. And then everything pivots in the middle of Exodus right around when they get to Mount Sinai, and you start getting these long lists of laws and things to do and ways to do them, and your reading starts slowing down, right? And then you get out of Exodus into Leviticus, which is as fun as it sounds, right? And then numbers is counting of people and stuff. And then Deuteronomy, which means the second giving of the law. So we're going to do it again in case you missed it the first time. And that's where most people quit reading the Bible through the years, somewhere in there, right? And yet they cry out, listen, read the law to us. Give us God's commands in how we're to live. Teach us how to return back to the way that God has called us to live. And they do this, and as they're doing it, what they hear is that we're not doing what we should be doing, and so they start confessing and repenting and returning. And we left off last week with them keeping a feast, a separation time where they would go out and live in these booths or tabernacles or tents. And they would do so to remind themselves of when God provided for them in the desert time. When they could have starved or died of thirst or, or animals or people or anything, God provided for them. And they celebrate this with an annual feast, and they're starting to get back into the practices that God has given them. And it's kind of like us, as we're kind of moving back towards the practice of gathering for worship, gathering for community groups, right? As we're working through, what does the, you know, the county say we need to do, and what do we, how do we do that, and how do we live that out? And we've got you know, half the people in here and half the people outside, and then you know, a whole other portion of people online, and so here we are as we kind of work towards what is it that God has called us to. All these scriptures kind of come to life for us. They have these spiritual practices or disciplines. And they read God's word. It says for a quarter of the day. And then they respond and worship for like a quarter of the day, right? Now, I know you guys have a football game to get to this afternoon and things. So we won't take that long, right? Priorities in our Sunday, but they gather together for an extended period of God's word. And their natural response to respond to God's word like we do. After the message, we respond in worship. It's this natural outpour when God speaks. We, we desire to worship. And sometimes our worship has to be, part of it must be confession, repentance. Because we recognize, hey, we don't measure up very well. And so we're going to do a little bit of that. We're going to read today more than just talk. But they also spend this corporate time together, and they separate themselves from outside influences. They gather together. Now, here's the people's prayer to the Lord, verse 6. They say, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven. The heaven of heavens will all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, or on it. The seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. They lead off with worship. And there's really thing, three things in this prayer 
that they begin with. One, what God has already done, and they worship God for what he has done. He has chosen Abraham. He's promised to them. He's created. He's done all these things. The next one they really lean into, and you've included us in your plans. You, in your goodness, you chose us to show your goodness too. You've given us your mercy, your grace, your goodness. And then the third thing, they trust God for the future. They, they know God is faithful, that God will be with them, that God is trustworthy. Verse 9, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard the cry, heard their cry at the Red Sea. And performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day. And by a pillar of fire in the night to lead them in the way in which they should go. The first thing they do after this, they, they kind of launch into this worship and gratefulness for who God is. And then the, they tell this story. They retell the story of the Exodus. If there's one thing I really picked up during this last year of reading all the way through the Bible, and through, especially through the Old Testament, right, as we did through our community groups and we taught through kind of some big picture pieces, we're wrapping that up. Nehemiah is kind of the end of the Old Testament era. As we went through that, here's something I learned. The number one thing repeated all throughout the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament too, but there's more. But in the Old Testament, the number one thing repeated is the story of the Exodus. How God delivered them out of slavery and made a nation out of them. They tell this story over and over and over again, the story of the Exodus. They remember God's faithfulness. They remember their need for God. They remember God's provision in the desert. And they tell this story over and over again. I'm gonna put this on the screen. What is our story? What story is our collective story of God's faithfulness? I know we have individual stories, but what story do we tell corporately? As a church, what is our story, right? How has God engaged us? Now, I know we have stories, right? And I know that I get to watch and walk with people in things that not everybody knows about. And I get to see God move in, in lives, in, in marriages, in couples, in children, in families, in individuals, whatever it might be. But what is our corporate story? What is the story that we sense God is doing in us or God has done through us? We have these individual stories, but the people of God have always told this corporate story of what God has done in them. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes statutes, and a law by Moses, your servant. I love this. He says, you spoke and gave right rules, good statutes, and commandments, right? They, they recognize as they pray this prayer, they confess to God that you have taught us the way to live. You have given us good ways to live, the right way to live. Now, they, they recognize that God has taught them how to live after they read scripture over and over again. This isn't like, hey, this is what I think is good, right? 
which is what passes in Christianity a lot today, right? Well, hey, I feel like this is right. But that's not what they're doing. They're letting Scripture speak hours at a time. They're reading Scripture, reading the law. And their response is not, hey, this is what I think is good. Their response is, this is what Scripture calls us to. And they say this, and listen, what you've called us to is good. It's right. There are statutes, commands, and ways to live, and it's good and right. Number two, they seek Scripture for correction. We'll put this up. Do we read scripture with an eye towards correcting what we're doing or, or not doing that would align with us, that would align us closer to God, either corporately or individually? Do we do that? Do we go to scripture to look where are we off track, right? Do we go to scripture because we think that's what we're supposed to do and, and so we read scripture? Do, do we go to scripture to help prove what we're doing is right and what our spouse is doing is wrong? That would never happen, right? Or whatever, Right? Do we, do we go there to feel encouraged, which is okay and good, that has that purpose? Or do we go there to learn about God and how God has taught us to live, really asking the question, where am I not doing that? Like, where is God saying here, and I'm way over here, and I need to get back on board? Yeah, that'll be good for me, but it's also right, because God is right. When we read scripture, is that what we're looking for? Or have we simplified it to, you know, three steps to a better marriage or how to have a better day? Or are we asking, hey, God, what have you called us to and where are we missing the mark? Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water out for them from the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. They remember God's provision again in the desert when there was nothing God provided for them year after year after year. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. That is a big but, right? Take that however you want to. <laughs> if you're young and immature or just immature like me, there you go, big but. But they still, see this is what happens when my wife's not at church. Give me that dirty look like, hey dude, you're over the line, right? Okay, so. She's at home. Love you. So, but they stiffen their necks, right? They, as God called them here, they stiffen their necks and they turned away. It's such an image, right? And did not obey your commands. God, you did this. You did this. Your ways are right and good. You provided for them. You led them out of slavery. You delivered them. You cared for them. You promised them a future, but they didn't listen. But they stiffen their necks and they did not do what you said to do. Verse 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Listen, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. An equally large but, right? But this, you, you were so good, but they didn't listen, but you still pursued them. You were still good to them. You still gave them mercy and grace and goodness. God, you are good. And no matter how disobedient they were, you remained good. See, that really ultimately is the gospel message. That God creates us, loves us, does right to us and for us, provides for us sets everything in motion that we need, and yet humanity, right? But humanity sins, goes the other way. 
Here is what's right. Here's what's good. But humanity goes this way. We have gone away. But God, in his love and his grace and his mercy, couldn't leave that to be the end of the story. But God loved us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus. But Jesus, loving us and redeeming us, gave his life for us. Right, But death couldn't hold Jesus. He was resurrected from the grave to give us new life. All, all those buts fit in there. God's love for us is so big that even when we are disobedient, he is right there to restore us to him. But through the gospel, we can be redeemed and be grafted into the family of God. In Hebrews, it says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. God loves us so much that he provides a way back, that we can draw near in confidence, that we can find mercy and grace and strength through Christ, that the gospel is this, is this yes, you did this, but God paid the price, but God desires you back, but God wants to redeem your life, but God has met you where you are and wants to restore you to him. So here's this long prayer that they're praying. I just want to read through it. Again, they would gather together, and they would just read through sections of scripture, and, and sometimes sections of scripture need lots of help understanding, and, and other times it's pretty straightforward. And the rest of their prayer, they're just capturing this story that God has been good to them. Even though then they were disobedient, God has provided a way back. That here they are in the predicament they're in because of God's goodness and because of their sinfulness. But God's goodness has gotten them back into this place and, and they want to live this out better. And so here goes the rest of their prayer. Verse 18. <clears throat> Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. Even when they gave someone else credit for delivering them out of slavery, God, you remained with them. Verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not even wear out, and their feet did not swell. God, you provided, right? Verse 22, and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner, and they took possession of the land, and Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, and the king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land, and you told their fathers to enter and to possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand, and their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and rich land, and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. God, you were faithful to them all the way. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient. There's that but. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. 
that would be heartbreaking about how, God, how good God is and how disobedient we can be if it wasn't so revealing about us too, right? Verse 27, therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer and a time of their suffering and they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven according to your great mercies you gave them, savior, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. This is that time where they sort of get given into their enemies and taken into Babylon, like verse 28. But they, after they had rest, did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of your enemies, their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn back, turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And if they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Many years of you calling them to repentance, and they still didn't listen, and yet you are merciful. You're a gracious and merciful God. Verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, upon our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous, and all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. I love that line. You have been faithful. We have been wicked. Our kings, verse 34, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law and paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from your wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in a land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Here's what they tell the story of. From the Exodus on forward into the kingdom Israel where God blessed them, took out their enemies, gave them rich land, gave them plenty, more and more and more. In the, in the wilderness, provided for them every day for 40 years. And, and they, were there only, they were there 40 years because of their disobedience. That little snafu with the golden calf, right? Where they gave this idol credit for delivering them out of slavery instead of the God who delivered them out of slavery. And yet God is faithful. God continues, right? And, and this is good news for us because we're wicked and disobedient and unfaithful. And yet God is still good to us. And so they tell this story. And listen, even when we got into the land and we had everything we needed, we still acted wickedly. We still disobeyed you. Even when everything was good, we were still bad. But you were still good, God. But you were still good. You were still faithful and you met us. And yes, you warned us, if we didn't listen, you're going to take your blessing off of us and that the nations would come in and conquer us. And you finally caused that to happen. And we were made slaves in Babylon. And we're slaves to this day, he says. You see, where we are in Nehemiah, they've been allowed to return. The first wave that went back under Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple, allowed to return by Cyrus, king of Persia. 
The second way, with Ezra, where they begin to refocus and rebuild their homes around faith, they're allowed to return under Xerxes. Now, Nehemiah, under Artaxerxes, is allowed to return and rebuild the city, but they still require permission from a king who is over them. They're still, even though they're living in their own land, what was their land, they're still not in charge of their own land or their own lives. But they're saying, but listen, we caused this. You were good all along, God. We caused this. We are the ones. Our fathers are the ones. The generations before us are the ones. And we're no different. They're not blaming generations that came before them. They're saying, we have done this all along. And that's a prayer we can pray. Like we've inherited sin and then we've added to sin. Like you've been good all along, God. And we have been sinful and unfaithful all along, God. Your mercy outlasts us. You've been so good to us, God, but here we are. And they want to draw this line right here and say, okay, but we need to be different. Another but, if you will, but we need to be different this time. Verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So they say enough is enough. <clears throat> what we need to do is change. We recognize your goodness. We recognize your faithfulness and our sinfulness. We see this generation after generation, and we see your goodness continue anyways. But we want to be different. God, our nation hasn't listened to you very well. We want to be different. Those are words I'd like us to say. Our nation hasn't done very well, but we'd like to be different. We've had our highs and our lows. We've had moments where we were better than other times. But if we're looking at just kind of where are we, the church in America is struggling to be obedient, to not be idolatrous, to not value so many other things over our faith. And so the people gather and they hear this and it just finally rests on their hearts and they understand and they're like, okay, not that we're any better because we're not. But we want to draw a line. We want a covenant with you, God. You have been a covenant God, keeping your word to us. So we want to commit back to you. And so they gather all their leaders, and they write this down, and they sign a covenant, a promise, like a contract, but with God. So much bigger, right? And then the next, whatever it is, 27 verses, is going to be a list of the names of the heads of houses and leaders that signed this covenant we're going to skip down and pick up in verse 28 with kind of the details of the covenant. Verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, the leaders that signed, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. So all the people and then all the leaders begin to sign, heads of households and, and kind of the patriarchs sign, and then they say, then, and all the rest of us who are related to them, husbands, wives, sons, daughters, whatever it might be, all who have understanding, we not only commit to this, but we say that there should be a curse on us if we don't do this. 
Like when you violate a contract, you can be taken to court and sued for damage or for penalty or for payment or whatever. But imagine now the person suing you is God. Like that's a problem, right? That's much bigger than a court. Like, okay, God, we're going to do this, and if we don't do it, you get to punish us for this. Not like he needs permission, but like, hey, we're committing to this in the biggest way we know how. We're going to covenant with you, God, and a curse on us if we don't keep this. They're going to outline three things they want to change about themselves. And there's probably a hundred things wrong with them, right? There's probably a hundred things wrong with us at least. I just mean just us, right? But you can't fix everything. You can't covenant to be perfect. We'll never be perfect. The only perfect one is Christ. He has come and paid the penalty and been perfect on our behalf. But they say, listen, enough is enough. We got to start somewhere. Here's three places we want to be different. Here's what they say. Verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Here's what they say. We will prioritize faith in our families above all else from here on forward. I'm going to put this on the screen. Covenant commitment number one. They prioritize faith in their homes. When we place faith over education, finances, and life goals, we place Jesus first and we trust God for everything else. Right? Where our kids go to college, what career they have, who they marry, all those things need to take a back seat to our faith in Jesus. Right? What sports they play or don't play, what scholarships they get or don't get needs to be under their faith. And we mess that up a lot. Right? See, when we prioritize faith, what we're saying is this. When we prioritize our faith, then we trust that God will play everything else out. We don't need a, a sports scholarship to pay for college if we trust God first. And God will figure out where our kids are supposed to go to college. Or if, right? Hey, we'll figure those parts out. If we trust in God, we trust that all else will play out. And so we're going to reorient our families around faith as a priority. And not faith and, just faith. And from there, we're going to let God lead us into the next places, into where we go, what we can afford, what we can do. We're going to stop chasing income. We're going to stop chasing position. We're going to stop doing this. We're going to place God first. Verse 31, and the peoples of the land... And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. There's a lot in here that they were going through that relates to them. But here's what they say that relates to us. We're going to commit to one day a week serving God. We're going to commit to a day of a week, a day of the week in worship, Right? Not just taking one off from work, which we struggle with already, right? But we're going to give one day a week to God, right? Not our hobbies, not sports on TV, not our families, to God. Then we're going to covenant together to spend a day a week, their Sabbath, with God. We're going to put this on the screen. Covenant commitment number two, they commit to a Sabbath. Giving an entire day to God means Jesus and his community are valued. It isn't just a day not working but a day spent in worship. Now again, remember, we say this all the time, worship doesn't mean what we do here during this 90-minute service, right? It doesn't mean just when we sing songs, although that's great. 
but they give a day to recharge their faith. For us as the church, as the New Testament pivots to Sunday, kind of begin our week. The Sabbath for Jews was the end of the week, the beginning of the week, same idea. Right? God creates over six days, creates Adam, Eve, creates humanity on the seventh day, and their first job is to Sabbath. Rest in God to prepare them for the week ahead. Right? Yes, we can value family. Yes, we can watch a football game. Right? Yes, we can watch the Cowboys stomp the Chiefs today. We can do that. It is biblical. Maybe. But is our priority spending a day with God and his family? Do we value this above all else? Do we value that gathering of time together? Do we spend that time with a covenant community of faith and give a day, not just a day to get our laundry done, not just a day off of our job? Let's start there, because a lot of us don't do really well at that. Do we give a day to God? Verse 32 we also take on ourselves the obligation to give a yearly third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread and the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests and the Levites and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of our Lord, our God. As it is written in the law, verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring in the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Here's what they do. They start talking about their giving. The first thing they talk about is the care for the worship services that they have, right? When they would go in and, and when the high priest would have to make a sacrifice for the sin of atonement of all Israel, they needed to give that, that they said they would commit to giving kind of a portion dedicated to that. The next was an act of serving, that they would give and provide for the ministry to be done. So first, we're going to set apart this, this third of a shekel, right, this little bit that collectively, this little extra that collectively, when we all do it, is a lot, to provide for general worship for the community. But then we're going to roll up our sleeves. We're going to come in and we're going to bring in and help and participate in the week-to-week -week worship and the worship that takes place all the time for the community. And then the third thing is we're going to commit to tithing as God has called us to, that the first tenth of everything we have is given to the house of the Lord. Here's what, here's what happens here. And it, 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 there's Yes, there's a recommitment of their giving. And yes, that's important. That's something we can learn from. That we can learn about tithing and giving. That those two are not mutually exclusive. That God calls us to tithe and then there are times to give also. And there are times to serve also. That all those things work together. But here's what's different about this moment in scripture. They begin, they begin to own worship themselves. Not, hey, that's for the guys that work here. That, hey, this is our church. Not the staff's church, not the elders' church. This is our church. And they know that being our church, that means we need to step it up. That we need to make our commitment to make sure that our church has everything it needs to serve our community. That's the pivot they make. Here's covenant commitment number three. 
They commit financially. Tithing and giving are acts of worship, but now they see this as their responsibility. They commit to funding worship in their community. They commit not just to giving, but to owning the responsibility that it takes to reach the community that they're in. Now, there's this limit. There's this a community that you could draw a circle around where they are, and that's kind of their community. We live in this hybrid kind of thing where maybe half the people will show up here today, maybe half the people will be online. Those are round numbers. It could be give or take either way, right? Some are in other places. Some live very locally. But do we own the responsibility that the ministry that we do is our ministry to the world that we're in? We've waited on this. We've brought this up at different points, especially during Ezra and Nehemiah. But today we're going to start something called the Nehemiah Project. We've been working on over the last few years. If you've been around, here's what you've experienced. If, if you were with us on the high school, here's what you experienced. About three years ago, I think it was, we moved into this building. We got this building, and we had to kind of remodel. It had been let go for a long time. If you, I always tell people, if you can see it, the exception of the kitchen, if you can see it, we've redone it, Right? Like, we pushed out a little bigger. It was a really small sanctuary. We pushed some things on the other side of walls. We painted everything. Every bit of flooring is brand new. And it took everything in order to move in here. As we did that, we started, we kind of moved in. We got things up. We launched service. And it wasn't very long after that COVID hit. But it wasn't very long, which kind of changed things. It did give us a base to work out of, which I thank God for, right? But it also stopped us in the midst of finishing what we needed to do. And we stopped because, well, really, we stopped because we ran out of money, right? So here's, if you're newer here, here's what you would need to know that nobody else, that everybody else should know already. We have no debt on the building, right? We own this outright. And that we were unwilling to take on debt. That we wanted to get in and do what we could, get up and running and be there and be in and own everything and not be saddled with you know, a payment on a building, right? Just now back up again two years into COVID and just look at all the businesses that had those big rents and, and lease payments and, and we didn't have that. By the grace of God, we didn't have that. That also means that our fixing up and building stopped and it stopped at the parking lot, obviously, right? It stopped outdoors, right? And we got in and had to fix sprinkler lines and irrigation and electric and we still don't have electric to some of it because some of the tree roots had grown and, and broken things out there. And so we just kind of parked. And so to give you kind of an idea, this is what the, can I have the first picture? That's the parking lot now. <laughs> you guys thought I owned a Jeep just because they're cool. I just had to get through the parking lot. And so, no, that's not it. All right, so here's what I wanted to show you. Here's what we want it to look like. Uh, we got some concept drawings done this week. And we have a landscaping plan. We've got a commitment in place. I'm going to keep this picture up before we go to the next one. I want to tell you something that's been amazing. You remember like Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, when they came, but when God led them back into the place, God gave them favor with people, with governments and kings and people. We got some of the same thing. When we bought this place, when we started to move in, the broker that helped us and I, we walked over to the, to the city and we said, hey, there's this shared parking arrangement between the church and the building above us. Looks like it's expired. Do you guys still want that? Because we're cool. They're like, it, that's great. Like, you probably need it more than we do, but we're good, right? And they said, no, no, we're not interested. We don't have a tenant for the building. Well, then they got a tenant for the building about two years ago, two and a half years ago. And they came back to us and said, in order to put that tenant in, we need the shared parking arrangement. 
And he said, that'd be great, except since we've moved in, we figured out we're liable for anything that happens in our parking lot. And like, I'm uncomfortable bringing a bunch of people we don't know who are going, because that's going to be a doctor's office, by the way, a medical facility. Like somebody coming in who needs to go to a medical facility and having them park in our messed up parking lot, like, hey, we got to work on this. And so they were pretty gracious and they offered to do a bunch of stuff. So they provided the landscape plan. They're the ones who pulled all our trees and did all that because, and by the way, just that was a whole, that's a grace all in itself because of the limitations of the city and trees, right? If you, any of you know anything about that, oh, it was a huge deal. Plus they did the work, right? And then they're going to do all of their stuff all the way up to one section of our curb that goes east, west, or left, right, if you're looking this way, right? And then our job is to fix the, fix the pavement, put in the landscaping, build the lighting, and then they're going to hook us up to reclaim water as well. And so that's really cool. We get to use that, and, and we can't wait for that. So here's where we are. We're about $200,000 away from where we need to be. Now, we have some of it. We started with a little bit. We're going to get some details together for you. I want to go to the next slide now. And so that's the overall look. That's what we're headed towards. Those are the, uh, those are the trees and the bushes and the things that they've got and the, the parking lot and all that. That's kind of the concept drawing of where we're headed. So our Nehemiah project, right? So our rebuilding what God has given us. Now, I know we inherited it like this, but you got my point. Uh, is going to take some fundraising. And so I know Giving Tuesday is coming up in just over a week, right? And so we wanted to be out in front of that. So here's what we're going to do. Here's what can, you can expect from us. We're going to send you out a detailed email or a probably app notification, probably bull, something through CCB, whatever. We're going to get the information out to you. We're going to start the fundraising for the $200,000 so that we can get in and fulfill our commitment to the city and our commitment, obviously, to the community, which is probably more important for us. We want to make our first impression as good as the impression you guys make when guests come. By the way, and I get, just so you know, I get complimented on you and how you treat people all the time. Just so you know that, all right? That's huge, that's amazing, and really good. You guys aren't very friendly to me, but you're very nice to guests, so that's good. <laughs> we want to make our first impression match our hearts. And that's where we're headed. And so you're going to hear more about how you can give and more about how, how we can do specific things to accomplish our goal. We're going to try and create a page. I believe we'll be able to do this. I just say try just in case. But we're going to try and keep something that has this running total so you know where we are and where we, where, how far we have to get. And so we're going to get that out to you today. And uh, not today, tomorrow, excuse me. We're putting together, a, a, you'll get some more information at the end of service, but a giving page, a page where you can go and, and look at different needs and look in different things and ask kind of where we are. And so we'll give you all the information we can. We're going to start what we're calling the Nehemiah Project. And so as the year gets to the end, and a lot of people start thinking through their year-end stuff, and right before you go bananas and spend all your money on Good Friday, we thought it would be a good time to talk about it, right? Black Friday. Good Friday, Black Friday. Yes, good point. <laughs> That's why I'm not allowed to talk without notes, see? All right. So here's the deal. We wanted you to know, and we want to begin. We want to begin work after the beginning of the year, and we want to get on this. We want to finish the project. We want to finish where we are as a church, right? And so um, we will get you information. Now, here's the one thing as a pastor who oversees our budget has to say. This does not mean you take your tithing and your offering, your normal giving, and move it to the, to the, to the Nehemiah project, right? Because we still have to like, be here on Sundays and eat and, and do ministry for kids and all that, right? 
So this is an ask for you guys over and above whatever it is that God has called you to do here to help us raise this $200,000. You'll have opportunities to share this with other people, businesses, companies, others. But we wanted to invite you into this process as early as possible. I said this a couple times during our, our Ezra series or our, in the Ezra Nehemiah series. Um, but we're ready to begin on this task. And so I want to put that out to you. I want to leave those kind of that covenant commitment as the, as the, as the people covenant together. Remember, they covenant first to prioritize faith in the families, right? Our homes will be centered on Jesus. That's the modern day version of what they say. And we will not put anything anywhere near Jesus. Everything will flow out of that. And then we will dedicate ourselves to worship. We will give a day to God, right? We will celebrate God in community with one another as a priority weekly with the family of God. And third, they say, this is our property. This is our building. This is our responsibility. And this is our way to reach our community. And we see that as our cause. And that's what they do. And they sign their names to this and they commit themselves. And so I'm going to leave this out for you there. You'll hear more, more to come. But I'm excited to share this with you and share the need with you and join with you as we, as we achieve this together. Will you pray with me? God, as we gather today, we have an opportunity to not only start that, but as we always do, recommit ourselves to you. We always have the opportunity, whether it's every Sunday or just every day, every minute, we have an opportunity to bring ourselves to a new place and just say, okay, I see where I'm off track, God, I want to return. I see where our family maybe off, is off focus or where our Sundays are, are off focus or where our commitment to faith may be a little off focus. I see where we think of this as their church, but not my church, our church. We always have that opportunity to return to you that way, Lord. And we thank you. Today, we get the additional blessing of taking communion together as a church. As our elders come up and they have the bread and the cup. And they remind us of the gospel, your body broken, your blood shed as your covenant to us. Those are your words, Jesus. This is my blood shed a covenant that your sin is forgiven. We remember our commitments to you. We respond to you. It's, it's your overwhelming grace and love and mercy that keeps pursuing us, even when we're disobedient, that reminds us of your goodness. And so as we come forward, we take communion, Lord. We remember the grace that you've given us. As we worship, we respond to your word. Whether the, the thing that stands out, the application we need is, is how we live in our families, how we live on our, on our commitment to worship, our one day a week given to you. That doesn't mean you're not a part of our other days of the week, but giving a day to be built up in you. Whether it's about financial commitment, whatever it is, God, that you're speaking to each one of us. Help us to use this time to gather back to you, Lord, to turn to you, Lord to draw near to you. Whether it's giving our families and our trust and our future to you, whether it's giving our time and our Sundays to you, whether it's giving financially to you, what we can never do is outgive what you have given to us. We can never give more than you have given to us. And so we are grateful that you even invite us into the process, Lord. I think of Jesus with the five loaves and the two fish, Lord. We have a little, we give a little, Will you multiply whatever it is we have and will you use it for your kingdom? Take our little offering, Lord. Take our little 
piece of what we get to do, Lord, and will you use it for your glory and for your fame. It's in your name we pray. Amen.